from McGraw-Hill Education. Welcome to This Wellness Life. Today, I have Heidi Smith. She's a microbiologist and a professor from Fort Range Community College in Fort, Rain Fort Collins, Colorado. Hi, Heidi. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. So I asked Heidi to hop on because there's a lot of information regarding COVID-19 going around. Uh, and we also have content in some of our fitness and wellness, personal health courses around infectious disease. And many of your instructors might be talking about this. Some of them might not. So I asked her to hop on so we can ask a couple questions and really make you feel comfortable about making good decisions for your health. So Heidi, the first question I have for you is, what is COVID-19 and how is this different than other viral outbreaks we see each year? Well, it sure is an interesting time to be a microbiologist. So I'm excited to share a little bit with everyone. Um, so just just to be real clear, coronaviruses are actually a group of viruses, and um, there's lots of different types of coronaviruses, and, and a lot of them are responsible for the common cold that people get every year. So most of us have probably had a coronavirus at some point during our lifetime, uh, but every once in a while, there's a rare strain of coronavirus that emerges or a new strain that we haven't seen before. And for whatever reason, uh, that strain causes more serious illness in people. So many of you may remember the SARS uh, outbreak and the MERS, which was Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, um, in the past couple of decades. Uh, and what we have now is a brand newly emerged virus that showed up in late 2019 in China to start, and uh, that particular coronavirus is now termed SARS-CoV-2 uh, because it also causes a severe acute respiratory syndrome, just like the original SARS outbreak that we saw um, early in the century. Uh, and then what you see in the news is uh, the term COVID-19, which stands for Coronavirus Respiratory Disease, and that that we're seeing from this 2019 strain. Uh, and it is a potentially severe respiratory infectious disease, uh, but there is some good news to be had in terms of, um, you know, what it does to the majority of people. And uh, there are definitely some ways to prevent it and, and help out the community. Yeah, so you mentioned SARS. I do remember that. And I think some of our audience might not even be, you know, old enough to remember some of those um, viral outbreaks in the past. So you just, you know, sharing that we've overcome some of that can give everybody a little bit of perspective too, right? And right. what steps would you recommend to ensure we're keeping ourselves and our loved ones healthy? Yeah, well, the first thing to know is that about 80% or more of people who have COVID-19 uh, will actually have a mild infection. And so that's good news for the majority of us. Um, anyone really under the age of 60, uh, ha there's a very, very low rate of severe infections. And so really, as we talk a little bit more about some of the measures we can take as a community, you know, it's those that are over 60 that are most at risk. And some of the things that we can do, um, those of us that are under 60, uh, to protect those 
uh, those older folks is really what you're starting to see happening in our communities with some of these public health measures that are taking place. But the good news is, is the majority of these infections are mild and people will recover at home. That is really good news. And, you know, when you hear about terms like social distancing, that's really why exactly what you're getting at, right, Heidi? Yeah. So, I mean, we can talk we look back like I'm a microbiology, you know, history nerd. I, I love to read about, you know, past pandemics and plagues and so forth. And, um, you know, we can look back all the way to 1918. Uh, many people are probably familiar with something termed the Spanish flu. And it was actually an influenza pandemic that went worldwide. And, and I mean, the numbers are grim. Uh, 30 to 50 million people died. Uh, probably over 500 million people actually had influenza in that pandemic. Uh, but some of the interesting research that has been conducted since then has looked at different measures that were taken in, in different cities, different countries to deal with that pandemic. And so one of the things that you're hearing in the news is that term social distancing. And it's really interesting. If you look at that Spanish flu of 1918, there's actually a comparison that was done between the city of Philadelphia and the city of St. Louis. And um, Philadelphia had their first case. And they didn't do a whole lot of, of really intervention at all uh, of, for that pandemic. And in fact, they even had a big parade with hundreds of thousands of people show up. And it wasn't until about two weeks into the pandemic that they, or into the, from the first case when they started to actually implement some measures. And if you look at the spike that occurred in the number of cases in Philadelphia, it was extremely high and extremely sharp spike. Um, if you contrast that with St. Louis, they had their first case, and two days later, the public health officials started implementing a lot of the things that we're seeing today, schools being closed, um, restaurants being, you know, sent to take out instead of dine-in, you know, bars and, and gyms and recreational centers closing down and really trying to keep the public distance from one another. And they implemented that. And if you look at their um, curve of the epidemic in St. Louis, it was much um, more gradual and a much lower peak. And in fact, the death rate was significantly lower in St. Louis as compared to Philadelphia. And so I, I know a lot of my students last week were asking questions about why um, all of these closures. And I mean, I'm from Colorado, we go skiing and, and every ski resort has been ordered shut down by the governor, which is unheard of. Uh, you know, but I, what I was explaining to them is that we do have to do our part as a community to keep the peak low so that we don't overwhelm our healthcare facilities. And so really, while it might be mild for the majority of us to get COVID-19, uh, the fact that if we follow the public health officials directions and we keep that peak nice and low and below what our hospitals and healthcare facilities can handle, we're really helping everyone um, and especially those who are most at risk, those that are 60 plus and those with underlying health conditions. So we can really learn something from a really disastrous pandemic of the past. And I think that's what you're seeing is people using the research from that to make good quality health decisions for us. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, as we're recording right now. It is St. Patrick's Day and many St. Patrick's Day parades over the weekend were canceled across the country. Um, I live up in the Boston area, and that is a really big deal, obviously, with a, a massive Irish population up here. So, um, mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean, we're all just trying to do our part and understand how we can really prevent this from spreading. 
Um, so I appreciate you really, you know, drawing on these experiences of the past to inform how our scientists are really better understanding how we can take protective measures to protect all of our health. Um, right. So yeah, I mean, worst case scenario, say you do come in contact with somebody you know was tested positive for the virus. What is, you know, what is the next step for somebody who might be a little nervous about that? Uh, well, one thing that they're definitely asking people to do is if they have had contact, they're asking people to self-quarantine for sure uh, for 14 days. Uh, the incubation period of the virus is still under research as to how long you may be infected before you see signs and symptoms. The most recent information I read, they're saying right around five to six days, uh, but they're really asking people to self-quarantine for at least 14 and then uh, also contacting the health departments and your doctors. Uh, I've seen a lot of uh, recommendations that you initially contact healthcare providers by phone so that you're not walking into offices, potentially carrying it to other patients that would be there, uh, making those phone calls, and then also keeping your health department um, notified. I know a lot of places all over the country, they have testing centers set up outside um, and, and that has been a little bit of a backlog, getting people tested as quickly as we'd like. Uh, but they are definitely recommending that you contact by phone your healthcare provider first, and then only going to get tested if you really show the signs and symptoms, so that we don't continue to sort of increase that backlog of testing people who really do need to be tested. You know, and meanwhile, while you're, you know, just doing your social distancing, hopefully from home, you know, you're washing your hands repeatedly. Um, avoid touching your face, which is, I think it's the hardest thing ever to do. It seems no, like it always itches the most. As I'm touching when, my face. When you shouldn't touch it. Yes. Just kind of staying away from other, you know, staying away from people who could be sick. And really, if you're sick, don't go anywhere. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, maybe using um, any sort of Lysol or, um, you know, alcohol-related um, cleaners that, that could um, wipe down services of frequent touch. Uh, those are things that I'm hearing too. Yeah, if you um, can find any in the store. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So hopefully you have a little bit of a stockpile at home, not too much. I, yeah. you know, hoarding is a big issue across the country right now too at the time of this recording. So maybe we'll see things change a little bit. Um, yeah, I would say don't hoard things, you know, just obviously you want to be well prepared. You want to have enough food in your house so that you're not continually making trips out into the public to the grocery stores for your protection and for others. Uh, and, you know, but also not going overboard so that the rest of the community and especially those who are at extreme risk, you know, you don't want the people who are 60 and above having to go to grocery store after grocery store, just trying to find food for their cupboards. You know, so keeping that in mind. And really one of the big things I told my students last week is, this is definitely going to be a situation where it becomes really about the we and not about the me. And really taking care of one another means using wise decisions and seeing what we can do to help our neighbors and, and so forth. Yes, absolutely. Taking care of each other and really relying on the fact that we're all in this together. It's a really strong, powerful message that we can overcome this by being smart and taking precaution, but also helping each other along the way as best as we can. Yeah. Uh, so I also have another really important question. A lot of students are starting to find themselves taking classes online, maybe for the first time. Do you have any sort of tips as an instructor too um, to give them while they're starting to tackle this experience for you know 
potentially school closings for the first time and taking um, all of their classes in an online virtual environment? Yeah, you know, the first thing I would say is know that many of your professors are also teaching for the very first time online. Um, and even from my perspective, where I've done quite a bit of uh, hybrid teaching, where I've done half online and half on campus, um, even I find myself having to learn to do some things that I haven't had to do before. And so the very first thing I would suggest is that um, we all have a whole lot of patience for one another as, as we're all sort of in this learning curve of, of distance learning. Um, and I would also say that communication is going to be the key. And as a, as a professor, what I would tell students is to keep those lines of communication open with your instructors, um, you know, patiently and politely asking questions and sending emails or whatever type of communication mode the professor may ask you to use. And just really um, asking for clarification where needed, asking for resources when you feel like you don't have them, um, and realizing that on the other end, every one of us professors really wants to do a great job um, of trying to teach from home and keep, you know, while we're trying to keep people safe, we're also trying to help you learn what you need to learn. Um, I, I think what we're going to see is, and what we're being told at least from my college perspective is, is really to create situations that provide flexibility for students, um, understanding that students have a, a lot on their plate more than even before, uh, students having kids home from school. Uh, I work with obviously healthcare workers, a lot of CNAs in my microbiology class, since the majority of them are headed into um, either nursing school or PA school, and, and they are gonna be working many, many hours to try to help with this situation. And so um, flexibility, communication, patience. Um, if your instructor offers live hours through some type of teleconferencing, I highly recommend you take advantage of that. Um, I know many times we see professors uh, offering tutoring hours and, and the tutoring room is empty. Um, I, I'd say I'd recommend that that's not the case in this situation and that you take advantage of whatever time your, your professor has um, to jump online and, and create some conferencing. Uh, it'll really help you as you work with, you hear from that professor as well as have an opportunity to talk and ask questions with other students. So I think we're all just gonna have to do our very best to make it through the end yeah, of the semester and, and make sure that students still are able to earn the credit that they've been working so hard towards. Yes, sure. I think you hit the nail on the head. Patience is key with each and every person and just assuming that everybody has the best intentions during this time. Um, and just also a little quick um, helpful information for any instructor listening. Uh, McGraw-Hill, if you go onto our website, there's a form that you can fill out if you don't have any access to online materials at this point in time, we can certainly help. We've opened up that um, opportunity for any instructor who needs support um, that it, we will not charge any student at this point in time for access to course materials so we can help you build course environment online and get them running really quickly. So please take advantage of that too if you're listening. Um, so Anyway, I, is there anything else that we didn't cover, Heidi, that you think would be helpful to share with anybody listening about the coronavirus and um, at this point in time, knowing it will change tomorrow right. or even in the next hour? <laughs> yeah, I, I, my biggest recommendation is just to be wise and prudent with any decisions you make and to listen to experts 
and not just anyone who has opinions. There's a lot that we don't know. Um, there are a lot that the experts don't know. And one of the biggest things that I'm hearing just in my, my circles that I run in is there are a lot of people thinking that a lot of these closures are mass hysteria and they're overreactions. And I think it's just really important for people to be well-read to understand that we don't really want to find out <laughs> if this was an overreaction. And that's why they're making some of these difficult decisions. And, and so listening to what the health experts are telling us to protect ourselves and to protect the community, and especially those who are most vulnerable, um, I, I think it's important to just be wise and, and, and trust that they're doing the best that they can with the information that they have, which in this case, because it's a novel virus, we don't know everything. Um, and so just being well-read, looking at why health officials are doing what they're doing, I think is really important um, to help us also make good decisions on our own. Absolutely. And I think we were talking about this prior to recording, but hopefully, you know, by the time we start to listen to this a couple months in the future, we have a vaccine and, you know, we're further ahead in understanding this virus even more yeah i think the last there were first human tests yesterday um so today's march 17th yesterday one of the first human subjects received a clinical trial um vaccine uh the best case i've read is we're really looking at end of 2020 um and the beginning of 2021 to potentially see a public you know vaccination opportunity uh, and, and therefore, again, just so important that we use some of these other non-pharmaceutical interventions like social distancing, working from home, closing schools, um, with the hopes that if we can delay and slow the epidemic curve as much as possible, it buys us some time to get that vaccine, you know, the trials done and safe and available to the community. So there, there is hope coming, um, again, just following the recommendations of healthcare officials. Um, getting through this with one another. Um, it's definitely an interesting time to, to be alive. Absolutely. Well, thanks for doing your part with me, Heidi, and social distancing yeah. from Colorado and out here in Massachusetts. We're just yep. recording virtually. Um, and hopefully this information helps anybody who needs it. So thanks for tuning Absolutely. in. And we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks again, Heidi. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.